Good to see you. Welcome. Go ahead and uh, open your Bible to Mark chapter 8. And uh, while you're turning there, we do have uh, some exciting church news to share with you. Um, At the beginning of the year, when we put together the 2018 budget as a church, we factored into that uh, a line item to add some new missionaries to our uh, budget that we could support God's work and the work of the gospel uh, both locally and globally. And so we started praying for uh, what new partnership would develop out of that. And uh, through prayer and myself and the mission team and the board have had a chance to uh, meet these uh, new missionaries that are, they're actually new to missions, but they're, they're new to us. They have been uh, doing church planting in Japan and they are home now uh, to get uh, some new support and go back to Japan in January. This is John and Maki Robeson and their three boys. And anyways, while they've been on home assignment here, we had a chance to uh, get acquainted with them as they were raising support and hear a bit about their ministry, doing church planting and discipleship in Japan, a place where there are, are, are so few Christians. I believe 99% of the country uh, has not responded to the gospel and is not walking with the Lord. And so uh, they are doing some incredible work in Japan. And so through prayer and discernment, we uh, as church leadership decided that this is how God has been leading for us to begin to financially support the Robeson family. Of course, that comes from uh, your generosity. Your giving allows us as a church to to fund them each month. They're going to be some of our missionaries here. We're going to put them up on the wall out there. So now FBC has uh, fingerprints in Japan now. As they go to plant a church, we are, uh, through finances and prayer, supporting that work. And so I'm really excited about this. I think it's just incredible ministry that they're doing. And they're going to be here Uh, Three weeks from today, so September 9th, it's a Sunday morning, John and Maki and their whole family are going to be here and they'll share up front a little bit about their ministry and what they're doing and there'll be a chance for you to meet them and after each service we're going to have a little uh, reception with some food for you to get to know them a little bit better and so I just wanted to share that news with you. Again, it's exciting, it's because of your generosity and we get to see now uh, churches planted and disciples made uh, across uh, the world. So that's pretty, pretty special. Um, with that, let me just pray again for us as we turn our attention uh, specifically to, to God's Word. God, we, uh, we praise you and thank you for um, John and Maki and the Robeson family that we get to partner with them in spreading the gospel. And we pray that you would, Lord, bless them as they seek to grow their support and uh, through finances and prayer. And Lord, we just ask that you would use them powerfully, Lord, to bring glory to your name, to make disciples, to plant churches, to uh, see people go from death to life in Jesus' name, Lord. Would you uh, go with them and prepare their way? And now, Lord, again, uh, open our hearts as we turn to your word. Prepare our minds to receive and to learn and to respond in faith and obedience. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, this Sunday we're starting a new sermon series called King and Cross. It's up on the screen there. For the fall, we're jumping back into the Gospel of Mark, something that we started last fall around this time, and we went into the spring. You know, it's a good time of year to kick off something kind of new because school, as we've seen, is about to be back in session, and summer vacations are settling down a little bit, and football season is upon us, and so we say, 
Yes and amen. We're celebrating those things. And so now in, in church world, it's a time where we, again, have our, our schedules a little bit more normal, where we really kind of settle in and look at, all right, Lord, what do you have for us in our church up ahead this fall? And so we're going to walk through the great book of Mark and study it together. Um, we got through chapter 10 last time we went through it, and so we're going to pick up where we left off in chapter 11 and finish the rest of the book. But for this morning, as a means of introduction and getting ourselves reacquainted with the book of Mark, we're going to be in chapter 8. So Mark 8, verses 27 through 31 is where we're going to be, because I know that some of us here may be new. New to FBC and weren't around for a lot of the Mark series, or maybe you came to some of it, or maybe you were here, but you forgot. And so, as a means of getting reacquainted with the gospel of Mark and kind of where we're going, we're all going to get up to speed together this morning. Sound good? Good. All right. The gospel of Mark was the, uh, the first gospel written. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these uh, four major accounts of the life of Jesus, his ministry, his teachings, his uh, miracles, his, of course, death and resurrection. Mark was the earliest written sometime in the 60s. Of course, not the 1960s, but the 60s of the first century, nearly 2,000 years ago. It was written by this man named John Mark, although he was not a disciple of Jesus in terms of, or excuse me, he wasn't one of the 12 uh, that walked around with Jesus. He was a close associate of the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter. And so much of this book is the compilation uh, uh, put together from the eyewitness testimony of the Apostle Peter, one who did walk quite closely with Jesus. And this gospel was written to, to reassure these uh, early Jesus followers who likely were undergoing a good amount of persecution and challenges in learning what it means to follow Jesus. This was written to remind them Here's who Jesus is, here's why that matters, and here's what this means for your life. And so again, we'll be in chapter 8, verse 27, which is kind of this hinge point of the entire book. Right? If it's a 16-chapter book, chapter 8 comes right in the middle there. And thematically, that's the case. As this uh, section we're going to look at kind of shows us what the first half of the book has been about, and then it's going to point us forward to what the second half of the book will be about. So it's one of those really clear points where we get to see kind of in summary what this entire gospel is supposed to be about. And we'll find, you'll notice, at the heart of it is this tension or this, this paradox, kind of an oxymoron, right? An oxymoron is a figure of speech where two apparently contradictory terms are put next to one another, right? Two things that don't normally go together go together, like act naturally. Well, which is it? Are we supposed to act or are we supposed to be natural? Or bittersweet? Or deafening silence? Jumbo shrimp, <laughs> right? Growing smaller. You hear that phrase? We're growing smaller. Interesting. Uh, working vacation. Airline food. <laughs> right? Two things that don't go together. And the purpose of an oxymoron is to really force us to stop, 
and think about what these two terms mean independently and then put together some new meaning or deeper reality is brought to the surface that we might not have seen otherwise. Some deeper insight or understanding is there as these terms are put together. And so what oxymoron is at the heart of the gospel according to Mark? It's king and cross. It's king and cross. Because kings are what? Kings are victorious, mighty in battle. Kings are winners, valiant, heroes, conquerors. And the cross is a sign of suffering, death, rejection, failure. Kings don't bear crosses. And yet, in the Gospel of Mark, the true king of the universe does. And so it's in those two concepts coming together that we really understand who Jesus is and what it means for us. That's what the book is all about. And so, let's jump in together to verse 27. As we see really the summary of the whole first half of the book. Who is Jesus? Is the question. Verse 27, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? And they replied, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. Okay, this is what the whole first half of the book has been building to. The disciples trying to wrap their minds around the identity of Jesus. And so Jesus turns to them and he asks, who do people say I am? What are people saying about me? What do people think about who I am and my identity? And I imagine in that moment, the disciples are, are thinking through what they have seen and experienced from Jesus already. The miracles, the, the teachings, these countless examples in their minds that Jesus is not fitting their categories. He's stretching them and, and, and not fitting their expectations, right? He comes on the scene in chapter 1 and says what? He says, the kingdom of God is at hand. He comes announcing the arrival of God's kingdom in his arrival. That's a, that's a bold claim. Then he calls these men to follow him as their teacher, their rabbi, and their savior. And then we see him healing the sick and driving out demons. In chapter 2, he does what only God's supposed to be able to do. He forgives sins. It's a bold claim. In chapter 4, he does what only God can do, controlling the natural world, calming a storm with his words. Then in chapter 5, he heals a woman with a chronic illness. He raises a man's daughter from the dead. In chapter 6, he miraculously feeds this crowd of 5,000 people abundantly with just a few loaves and fishes. He walks on water, showing his authority again over the created world. He, he teaches with authority. He's doing these things that they've never seen people do before, and they're things that only God is supposed to be able to do. And so we get to the end of chapter 8 here. It's been building to this moment, and people don't quite know what to make of this Jesus. You see it in the text. Well, some think you're John the Baptist. 
uh, back from the dead. Some think you're, you're Elijah, this famous Old Testament prophet, is now back on the scene to usher in the kingdom of God. Some think you're him. Some people think that you're another prophet. People don't quite know what to make of all this, Jesus. And so he says, okay, let's, let's make it a little easier. Let's bring it a little closer to home. What about you? But what about you? He asks, who do you say I am? Love that question. That's the question, isn't it? He turns to them and says, okay, okay, okay. Don't, don't worry. It's not about what, what the crowds say. Okay, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to worry about that right now or what, what your friends say, your peers, what your parents say, what your spouse says, your husband or your wife, what your kids say. I'm not, I'm not asking what they say. What do you say about me? Who am I? Peter answers, well, you're the Messiah. You're the Messiah. Maybe your translation says the Christ. Jesus, you are the Christ. It's a word that means the anointed one. There's this title for this divine leader, this uh, appointed figure that the people of Israel for centuries had been hoping for, longing for their Messiah, their Savior, their King to return and to restore peace, justice, to bring God's kingdom, to overthrow the oppressive powers of Rome or other occupying powers over the centuries, to reverse the effects of sin and death, to fulfill the promises of God that he made to his people throughout the Old Testament of this king that would come to, to reestablish God's kingdom on earth, to restore humanity back to God in relationship and to restore humanity to be the people that God had always intended them to be. Peter says, that's you, Jesus. You're the Messiah. You're the king we've been waiting for. Remember earlier in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus' first words of the book, again, the time has come. He said, the kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom has come near. Here we go. Repent and believe the good news. Believe the gospel that I am the long-awaited Savior, that I have arrived. The kingdom is here. It's at hand. Repent. Turn from your sin and trust in me. Look to me for salvation. Look to me with all of your hopes and longing. And notice that he's not just then announcing the arrival of the kingdom. Throughout the first half of the book of Mark, we actually see that he's making the even bolder claim that he is the king. And here we are in chapter 8. Peter puts it all together for us. You're the Messiah, Jesus. That's who you are. It brings us full circle, captures the heart of the first half of the gospel. Jesus, it's you. You're the one we've been waiting for. I have a short video. We don't actually, I don't know if we've really ever used a video. One, once or twice during preaching. But I want you to take a look at this video, just a couple of minutes, that, that helps uh, unpack this theme a little bit that we see in Mark chapter 8. Let's take a look. There's this beautiful poem. It's in the book of Isaiah. The city of Jerusalem has just been destroyed by Babylon, a great kingdom in the north. And all of these Jewish people, they've been sent away into exile, but a few remained in the city. And they're left wondering, what 
just happened? Has our God abandoned us? Right, because Jerusalem was supposed to be the city where God would reign over the world to bring peace and blessing to everyone. Now, Isaiah had been saying that Jerusalem's destruction was a mess of Israel's own making. They had turned away from their God, become corrupt, and so their city and their temple were destroyed. Yeah, everything seems lost. But the poem goes on. There's a watchman on the city walls. And far out on the hills, we see a messenger, and he's running towards the city. He's running, and he's shouting, good news. And Isaiah says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. Beautiful feet? Yes. The feet are beautiful because they're carrying a beautiful message. What's the message? That despite Jerusalem's destruction, Israel's God still reigns as king, and that God himself is going to one day return to this city, take up his throne, and bring peace. And the watchmen sing for joy because of the good news that their God still reigns. Now in the New Testament, we find this same phrase, the good news. It's the Greek word euangelion, and it's also sometimes translated with the word gospel. Yeah, so when Christians say, do you believe the gospel, they mean, do you believe the news? But not just any news. In the Bible, this phrase is always about the announcement of the reign of a new king. And in the New Testament, the Gospels use this phrase to summarize all of Jesus' teachings. They say that he went about proclaiming the good news of God's kingdom. So Jesus saw himself as the messenger, bringing the news that God reigns. Yes, but the way that he described God's reign, it surprised everybody. I mean, think, a powerful, successful kingdom. It needs to be strong, able to impose its will, able to defeat its enemies. But Jesus said the greatest person in God's kingdom was the weakest, the one who loves and who serves the poor. And he said that you live under God's reign when you respond to evil by loving your enemies and forgiving them and seeking peace. This is an upside-down kingdom. Now, Jesus also said that this kingdom was arriving with him. Yeah, so for example, there's this really interesting story where there's a high-ranking Roman officer, and he comes to Jesus begging him to heal his servant. And he even calls Jesus his Lord, acknowledging that Jesus is his authority. Jesus praises this man for recognizing what no one else yet had, that not only was Jesus announcing God's kingdom, he was the king. And so the word gets out that this Jewish man from Galilee is talking and acting like he's the king of Israel. He's appointing 12 disciples, which are an image of Israel's 12 tribes. He's healing people, forgiving people their sins. And all of this so threatened Israel's leaders that they finally decide to have him killed. And Jesus let them. Yeah, which is a weird thing to do if you're trying to become king. That's right. But for Jesus, this is what had to happen. Jesus saw the sin and the devastation of his people Israel as just one small part of the entire human condition. How all humanity has rebelled against God, resulting in the tragedy and devastation of our whole world. So how is God going to bring his reign over such a world? Jesus believed it would be through an act of sacrificial love for his enemies. This is why in the Gospels, Jesus' crucifixion is depicted as his enthronement as the king of the Jews. Yeah, he receives a crown. He also receives a robe. He's exalted up, not onto a throne, but onto the cross. How beautiful are the feet that bring good news. 
And the good news now is that Jesus has defeated death and that he reigns as king, that he's dealt with our sin and corruption himself and that he's conquered it with his life and with his love. And then Jesus sends his followers to go out and keep announcing this good news of the upside down kingdom. And to invite everyone to give their allegiance to him, the king who defeated death with his love. Amen. Right. What a great, I just animated that myself this week, just kind of figured I'd, you know, put a little video together and no, that video is from a website called The Bible Project and they just do fantastic work helping these themes of scripture uh, really come alive in visual form. Uh, and you see though, uh, this explaining what we've been talking about so far, this Messiah, this King, it's Jesus. But it goes on to explain how Jesus becomes King and that's what the second part of the book is all about. But before we get there, I really want us to think about what does it mean that Jesus is our king? Two big things. One, it means that he is our hope, right? He's the one that we look to who will, one, uh, set things right in our own lives, right? We all know the reality of sin in our hearts, uh, the need for forgiveness of those sins and reconciliation to God, and Jesus has provided that through his death on the cross, his death in our place, he's allowed us to be forgiven and cleansed and given new hearts and reconciled to God. So he's our hope for salvation, our only hope. But also, Jesus is the only hope for the world. As we look out at a world that is so broken and fragmented and so in need, you see, who's going to set this thing right? Is it going to be politicians or activist groups or, or ourselves, our own strength? Are we going to be the ones that fix this? We say, well, no, we really, we need our king to come and, and establish his reign. And he's doing that as he changes the hearts of men and women. We begin to live as citizens of the kingdom of God. That uh, expands from here out to all the earth. And so Jesus is where we look to for hope, for change in ourselves, but also for change in the world. But the second piece of this is the question of authority. If Jesus is the king, it means that he is our authority, which is where some people are uh, going to get mad right now probably because we want to be our own authority, right? We live in a society and really a Western world that, that celebrates the, the sovereign self, right? You are the one who decides what to believe. You are the one who decides what is right and wrong and good and bad and, and what you should prioritize with your life, who decides that? Well, you do. And no one else and nothing else, not even scripture or some Jewish rabbi from 2,000 years ago is going to tell you how to live, right? Often that's our, our posture. But if we recognize that this is true, that, that Jesus is the king of the universe, it means that he is our authority, and so when we ask the question, well, who gets to decide right and wrong in my life? Well, Jesus does. And who gets to decide what I should prioritize with my time and my money? Well, Jesus does. And who gets to decide how I should live and the things I should or shouldn't do? Well, Jesus does. Right? If he's the king and we're citizens of his kingdom, then we recognize his rule and reign and we submit our will to the will of the king even when that's uncomfortable for us. Even when we maybe personally feel otherwise, will we recognize his ways? 
And so we can think about this in a number of practical applications in life. And this is where people usually get mad, right? That theory is cool, but then what does it actually mean in my life? When, when Jesus says to love the poor and protect the vulnerable and care for the sojourner or the immigrant among you, that's the way of the kingdom. It's not optional. Or when Jesus says that my followers, my disciples, are to be baptized. That's an issue that a lot of us say, well, should I get baptized? Maybe. Yeah, I don't know. But if we're walking with Jesus and Jesus says, well, baptism is a part of this whole following me to identify with me publicly. Again, will we obey the king? What about when the king says to, to love your enemies, to forgive those who have hurt you? even hurt you in some pretty terrible ways, will you listen and respond with forgiveness or, or will we hold on to, to bitterness? Will we love our enemies? Will we love those who are different from us? Or what about, here's one that's fun, when the king, Jesus, in Mark chapter 10, defines what sexuality and marriage is supposed to look like. He says, well, it's a man and a woman, quoting Genesis, united for life. That's the appropriate bounds of sexuality. And so, when it comes to anything outside of that, whether it be uh, premarital sex or uh, us wanting to, to leave and get into uh, divorce or uh, pornography or, or same-sex intimacy, whose authority will we believe? Will we listen to the king and say, actually, this is my design for humanity, and this is how my kingdom functions. Or will we say, actually, no, I'm, I'm going to be the one, thank you very much, who gets to say what's right and wrong. And we can apply this to any number of issues. If I didn't mention your particular hang-up, then you have one, because I have one too. We all have areas that are not in line with the kingdom of God. But the question comes, when those surface, will we obey the king? Or will we hold on to our own right to determine how we will live? See, often we, we want a savior, but we're not so sure we want a king. We'll follow his ways until maybe they start to disagree with our views on things. So, Jesus is the king. You saw in the video, love that video, it does a great job of summarizing what that means, but it, it points us beyond just the first half of the gospel of Mark, right? We talked about Jesus is the king. That's what the first half of the gospel is about, showing us in these word and deed, these, these miracles, these powerful ways that this is, this is God come to us to rule and to reign. But then it points us to the second half of the book of Mark, to how he becomes king, how he establishes his reign, and it's through the cross, right? And Jesus even continues in verse 31, pointing to what will come in the rest of the book. He says, He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. You see, you see what he's saying? Jesus, you're the King. You're the Messiah. You're the long-awaited ruler who will come and set all things right and overthrow the bad guys. Yes, that's me. But here's how I'm going to overthrow evil. Here's how I'm going to set things right. I'm going to suffer and be rejected and die. 
would make no sense for the disciples to hear that or, or for a first century Jew to hear that. See, the disciples and the, and the people of God had expectations for what their Messiah was going to look like. I mean, almost by definition, the Messiah wins. They're a conqueror. They're the one that overthrows the bad guys and evil and injustice and sets things right. And so their picture of a Messiah did not include rejection and suffering. Thank you very much. Would rather do without that. Jesus says, no, this is actually what's coming. Again, it's hard for us to get really how backwards that would be. And so I want to try and help us understand this by a, a little illustration. We're going to go to one of my favorite stories. We've talked about this before, The Lion King. One of the greatest movies of all time, in my opinion. Disney, it's animated. If you haven't seen it, shame on you. Shame on you. Go see it. It's spectacular. But if you've seen it, remember what happens. Uh, we're all, you know, if you were a kid growing up watching this, you're scarred because, uh, no pun intended, Mufasa dies, right? And you watch this tragic death, and Simba is like crying at his dad's death. It's terrible. Um, and then Simba, the true king, the heir to the throne is cast off into exile, and, and the hyenas, right, the bad guys take over the land, and they rule the pride lands, and it, it leads to what? Just devastation and destruction, and everything goes dark, and trees aren't producing fruit, and every, there's no food, and, and people are, are miserable. It's really, if you think about it, a really accurate depiction of what's happened in Scripture, right? Humans overthrew uh, God and said, actually, no, we don't want to live under your reign. We're going to do things ourselves, and it leads to complete destruction and havoc. And so, one of the lions, a lioness, Nala, comes to Simba out in exile and says, you got to come back. Like, you got to take up your throne and deal with evil here and, and throw off the bad guys and make things right, because things are bad. And there's this picture, if you remember from the movie, where they're, they're looking out at the Pride Lands, and she's like, look, we got to go. And it's just, again, devastation, darkness, death, no food, barren wasteland. And he decides to go back. And we know how the movie goes. He returns and he, you know, kicks butt and all the bad guys go bye-bye. And he restores uh, harmony and, and flourishing to the land. But think about it. What if in this moment they're looking out at the devastation and he's like, I'm going to go back. And Nala's like, right, you know, his girl, she's like, right on. You're going to go. You're going to be the king. You're the Lion King. You're going to set things right. Let's go overthrow the bad guys. And what if in that moment he's like, yeah, I am, but we're going to go back and they're going to kill me. You're like, what? No, that's not how the story goes. We go back and you kill the bad guys, not the bad guys kill you. What are you talking about, Simba? Look, we got some work to do. So for the disciples saying, Jesus, if you're the king, if you've come to establish the rule and reign of God in the world, what are you talking about? This suffering, rejection, death. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't, it doesn't fit the picture. And so we see, though, Jesus saying, verse 31, he began to teach them exactly that. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and after three days rise again. So yes, I am the king, but I'm establishing an entirely different type of kingdom, one that you would not expect, one does, that does not come primarily first through external, visible changes and overthrowing the bad guys and showing power 
over my enemies, but first I'm going to deal with these internal realities. Internal transformation comes first in death for my enemies. And he shows us that your biggest problem is not out there. Right? Not the government or oppressive people in power. It's not the people that are mean to you or persecuting you. Your, your biggest problem is the sin of your heart. So, so when I come and establish my kingdom, that's what I'm going to deal with first. That's what needs to be made right. And so he goes to the cross. He goes to die in our place to carry the sin and the death of the world on his shoulders and dies in our place so that we could be forgiven of our sins, cleansed, made new, reconciled to God. Peace could be restored between us and God. That's the heart of the good news, isn't it? That we have a Savior who died for us, who took our sin and death so that we could be forgiven and reconciled to God. And so the good news, the gospel, is not just that Jesus is going to take care of everything out there and fix all the problems in our world, which he will, but the heart of the good news is that he's going to fix the problems within us and deal with our sin and transform our hearts. And remind us that we enter the kingdom not by our works and our performance, but the only way to get into the kingdom is through faith in Jesus, through faith and trust in the king. That's the only way. And he shows us this through the cross. And if you're here this morning, that's a decision that you've never made. You've never put your faith in Jesus as Savior and as King. I invite you to consider trusting him today for salvation. He says, whoever comes to me receives eternal life. Whoever believes in me will not perish, but have everlasting life. Reconciled to God. What a gift. So the cross is the way Jesus is enthroned, the text tells us. He establishes his kingdom over sin and death in this way. But the cross also shows us the way of the kingdom. Okay, Look at verse 34. Then, a little bit later, he, he called the crowd and his disciples to him. And he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. Or excuse me, for me and for the gospel will save it. You see, so for those of us that follow the king and want to live in the kingdom of God, how are we to live? He brings everybody together and says, listen up. In case you thought the way of the cross was just for me, it's actually for you too. It says, whoever wants to be my disciple will take up their cross. Not in order to uh, bear the penalty for sin, but to walk in the footsteps of the Savior, to deny ourselves and to die. And isn't it true that sometimes we, we see, okay, Jesus died on the cross, that's great, but now can we just get back to the power over our enemies and, and the victory and kind of the, the up and to the right type of conversation where we're just doing really well and things are great? Can we get rid of our enemies now and can we just have a little more power in our life, Jesus? But Jesus is showing us, no, the way of the cross is the way of the kingdom. So my people are to walk in the ways of sacrificial love, pouring themselves out for the good of other people, to be peacemakers, to carry themselves with humility. And a lot of the time, it's going to look like losing. But that's 
the way of the kingdom. It's, it's upside down. So it's not just here's what Jesus did. It's actually, no, here is the way that we as people of the kingdom will go as well until he returns and establishes his kingdom forever. And so we have king and cross at the heart of the gospel of Mark. And it's in the combination of these two ideas that we really see who Jesus was and what that means for us. Looking forward to jumping into the second half of the book for the next few months ahead with each of you. Hope you'll join us. And now we have an opportunity to uh, transition to a time of communion where we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And this is one of those symbols, those signs of the kingdom that Jesus gave to his followers. On the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and after giving thanks, he broke it, said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so we now together get to come to the table and celebrate communion. Jesus' broken body and shed blood for our sins, for our forgiveness. So I encourage you uh, to join us if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ. We practice an open table here, which means that uh, even if you're visiting, if you are a follower of Jesus, walking with the Lord, we encourage you to, to come and participate with us. If that's not you, you're, you're not really sure where you're at, I encourage you to remain seated. Uh, think about the things we've talked about this morning. Uh, and I encourage you, before you come, take a second to reflect on the gospel, on what Jesus has done for you. If there's sin that you need to confess before the Lord, uh, take time to do that in your heart, and then come and receive uh, the elements as a a sign of the grace and forgiveness and welcome of God. Let's pray. Well, God, we thank you for your grace and your mercy that you have justified us by faith in Jesus Christ. We do not stand before you righteous or worthy on our own merit, but only because of the work of Jesus on the cross and his death and resurrection. So God, we come to the table aware of our need, humbled that we all come to the foot of the cross, needy, so desperate, Lord, for you and your forgiveness and your grace. And we we come to the table praising you, Lord, grateful that you have forgiven us in Christ. You have saved us. You have given us grace. You do welcome us home because of what you've done. Thank you. So we come and we celebrate you, Jesus. You are the king. We worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.
Would you stand and sing together as we close this morning?
Amen. Friends, it's been great to be together. Thank you for joining us for worship. Go in peace, believing the gospel. And reminder, if you are not in a small group, the tent outside on the grass is a place to get more information. Would love to share with you about small groups. Hope to see you there. Go in peace.